Well, I want to welcome you as we together celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This changes everything. I remember uh, my brother and sister and I are, the three of us, are, are children of two people that are both only children. So what that means is we don't have any aunts or uncles or any cousins. I mean, it's just us. And in our generation, we've done our best to rectify that problem. I have five children, my brother has six, and my sister has three. So we finally have cousins and uncles and aunts in the family. And I remember one time when the kids were very young, I think Holly was just about this big, uh, and we, we got on a plane, and it turned out that my brother and his family were on the same flight. And boy, everybody was so excited. We got in that airplane, there was a lot of back and forth over the seats, and they were talking and enjoying the time, and finally we got near to our destination, and the announcement came across the loudspeaker. We were about to land. I don't even remember what city we were landing in at the time. And uh, so all of the stuff that has to happen to land a plane began to happen. We put all of our stuff back in the bag, slid it under, underneath our seats, and put the trays up, made sure the seat backs were up, and, and, and then all of a sudden, we hit a very steep descent. At that point, my niece, in the row in front of us, began screaming with a little girl, blood-curdling scream voice, we're crashing, we're crashing, we're crashing, which made everybody around quite unsettled. Her mother sprang into action, the awesome mom that she was, and she says, stop screaming. We are not crashing. We are landing. Do you ever wonder if the flight you're on is crashing, if your life is compared to a flight, do you ever worry that things aren't going well and you're afraid at the very end of this? Because you all know what happens at the end. You know what's going to happen at the end. We're all going to die. Is it possible to not crash and burn in this life? Is a safe landing possible? Jesus was the Son of God, according to the Scriptures. And he came, and he went to a cross... And he, it seemed as if he knew exactly what was going on. You know, you, you can read the seven sayings of the cross, but the very last thing Jesus says is, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit and he died. There seemed to be an agenda a plan. And when he died, all of his disciples and the people around him thought, well, it is finished. It's over. We had high hopes that he would be our rescuer, our redeemer, our savior, but now 
he is dead. But then Matthew 28 happens, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. This changed the hope of mankind forever. In the early church, as they began to realize that Jesus, he died, it was awful. But then he rose again. They developed this tradition that we don't use often, but if, you ever, if you've been here before at Easter, you might have heard this before. We're gonna do it again because I love it. Come back next year, likely we're gonna do it again. They developed this greeting that went like this. Someone would say, he is risen, and you would respond, he is risen indeed. Have you got it? So if I were to stand up here today and say to all of y'all, he is risen, you would respond by saying, and indeed he is. And now we have hope. You know, the truth is, life is a struggle. We're always wondering, are we crashing or are we landing? Are, are, is it possible for us to have a peace? Are, are you believing in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? It really comes down to that. If, if you have not, then perishing is the option. But if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus and believe in him, even though the flight might get bumpy and things might uh, be uncertain, um, you don't have to crash, you can land, because Jesus takes over. Now, I think people all over the world are, are asking these questions. There's a guy that was part of a musical band, I don't know if you've ever heard of this band, but um, his name was George Harrison. Anybody ever heard of a band with a guy named George Harrison on, in it? Have Anybody guess? Who do you think? The Beatles. Have you ever heard of the Beatles? What's wrong with y'all? On November the 29th in 2001, Mark Phillips from CBS reported that George Harrison, at the age of 58, died of cancer surrounded by his family. Harrison's life and music reached for the same notes, inner strength and inner peace, and struck a chord with millions, according to the reporter. He goes on to say, of all the Beatles, George Harrison hadn't been the brash one or the cute one or the funny one. He'd been the thoughtful one, seeking not fame but answers. He said the purpose of life is to find out who 
am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? That's what we need answering. As he was dying, his final message to the world was, everything else can wait, but the search for God cannot wait and love one another. That was his conclusion. There's a professor from MIT, his name is Alan Lightman, a brilliant man, a physicist, an author, and he, he is a proclaimed, self-proclaimed atheist. Now, sometimes you think, well, if I just say I'm an atheist, you know, game over, all is well, I'll just live my life thinking that, you know, there, nothing is coming after this, so forget worrying about judgment or anything. Well, you know, uh, this professor was a thoughtful man, and this is what he had to say. He contemplates the day of his daughter's, daughter's wedding. It was a perfect picture of utter joy and utter tragedy because I wanted my daughter back as she was at age 10 or 20. As we moved toward that lovely arch, other scenes flashed through my mind. My daughter in first grade holding a starfish as big as herself, her smile missing a tooth. Now she was 30 and I could see lines in her face. Lightman confesses, he has a hard time accepting that for him and his daughter and everything else, it all ends in nothingness. Despite all the richness of the physical world, the majestic architecture of atoms, the rhythm of the tides, the luminescence of the galaxies, nature is missing something even more exquisite and grand, some immortal substance which lies hidden from view. Such exquisite stuff could not be made from matter because all matter is slave to the second law of thermodynamics. Perhaps this immortal thing that we wish for exists beyond time and space. Perhaps it is God. I cannot believe that nature could be so amiss in my continual cravings for eternal youth and constancy. I am being sentimental. Perhaps I could accept the fact that in a few short years, my atoms will be scattered in the wind and soil and my mind and thoughts gone. My eyeness dissolved in an infinite cavern of nothingness, but I cannot accept that fate, even though I believe it to be true. Boy, do you see the angst in his life? I cannot force my mind to go to that dark place. Why? Because the only thing that is true and real and rescuing is the fact that Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth to rescue us from our sin and to give us eternal life. And anyone who believes in him, this is the words of Jesus, will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I grew up in church. My dad was a preacher when I was born. I'm the son of a missionary, been, been in church. If going to church counted somehow for, you know, God, I'm, I promise you, I'm way ahead of most people. I was in church more times than I wanted to be. But I did hear the truth of the gospel, and I did believe because I saw a genuine faith in my parents. And I hoped it was true and believed it was. But when I was a freshman in high school, I had a teacher get up and say in front of our class, 
You all believe in God only because your parents programmed you to believe in that. You were brainwashed. What if it's not true? What if there is no God? How can you know? Boy, that disturbed me to the core. I mean, I had believed, but now I was doubting, and I needed more. I needed something that, that would help me understand that I could actually believe, that could satisfy me intellectually. And, and so I began to just pray a prayer like, God, I don't even know, I don't know what to do with this. Please show me if you're real. I need to have my faith fortified. I need to know how to believe. So one afternoon I was in my dad's library, he had lots of books. Nobody else was there. Started looking through the books. All of a sudden I came across this book written by a man whose name is Josh McDowell entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And in that book, Josh McDowell lists maybe not all of them, but the 380 prophecies and predictions of the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God was coming in person. The Son of God would come to save us from our sin. This Son of God would pay for our sin on a cross. These prophecies are there. And I began to read through this book and I, I, I came across things like the plan of the ages, which is this idea that even before any of us were created or the world was created at all, that God created the plan of the ages because he knew that we would betray him and we would sin and we would fall away and we would reject him as our Lord. We would make ourselves our own master. We, he knew that Satan would deceive, but so God immediately in that time, he put in place this most extravagant, complicated plan that was thousands of years long, generations of people long, because when you're God, you don't have to get in a hurry. The first inkling that God would solve our problem comes when Adam and Eve sinned and God confronts them and the serpent the one who deceived them. And this is what it says in Genesis 3.15. It's actually called the first mention of the gospel, the Protevangelum. And this is what he says to the serpent. This is what his statement is to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And notice that that second seed is capital S. That's a clue in the Bible. You know what he's talking about? Between your seed and her seed. He's talking about the coming of Jesus there. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so in this particular passage, it predicts an epic battle that will come down to the son of God and the serpent, the deceiver, Satan himself. And in that battle, the, the, the serpent will bruise the heel of the son of God, but the son of God in the process will crush the head of the serpent. Now let me ask you a question. How do you kill a snake? You crush its head. And so the plan was set. God would come. God would fight the fight for us. He would destroy Satan, the power of sin, and he would win. And then the prophecies begin to unfold. 380. Statistically speaking, 
for a man to fulfill all of these prophecies in one life is improbable. It just didn't happen by chance. This is where I begin to get excited and my faith begin to quicken. As a freshman in high school, you will recognize some of these prophecies most likely. When we celebrate Christmas, here's what we hear. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. There we go. He would be born in Bethlehem, but he would be, a Nazar- he would be from Nazareth. But out of Egypt, God would call his son. How in the world do you take one family, let them be from Nazareth, be born in Bethlehem, that's not in Nazareth, and he would then be called out of Egypt? And then you read the narrative of the birth of Jesus. The Mary and Joseph, who were from Nazareth, go to Bethlehem because a far and distant Caesar of Rome commanded that a census be taken, and they go to Bethlehem, and the baby is born. And then Herod hears from the, from the wise men after the angels announced a king was born in Bethlehem, that another king has been born, and so he orders the killing of all of the young children. And in the night, the angel tells Joseph, get up, get up now, take Mary and her son, and go to Egypt Amazingly, these complicated, intricate parts of the prophecy of the Messiah are fulfilled. Those are just a few. When it comes to Jesus' life and his death, here are some of the things we read. Psalm 41 says that he would be betrayed by a friend. Can anybody think of the man who betrayed Jesus? His name is Judas. He was one of the 12. He was a friend of Jesus. His betrayer would be paid 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah, it says that it would be 30 pieces of silver. In the Gospels, 30 pieces of silver were given to Judas. It says in Psalm 22 that his hands and his feet would be pierced. What in the world is going on with that? In 587 before Christ, when this prophecy of Psalm in Psalms was written, there was no such thing as crucifixion. Nobody even knew about that, but here it's predicted before it was sort of invented by the Romans, and Jesus was horrifically executed through the crucifixion that the Romans did. His hands and his feet were pierced. In Psalm 22, it describes that all who see me will mock me. They'll hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in God. Let let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Those words are very similar to Matthew 27. When the elders said, "He, he, he saved others, why can't he save himself? The truth was, Jesus hanging on the cross was God. He could have come down at any time, but he was working out a plan with precision. It even says in Psalm 22 that one of the cries of Jesus from the cross would be this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This takes place in Matthew 27, 46. It even says that he would Cry out in thirst, Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my stump, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. In Matthew twenty-seven, Jesus says, "I thirst." They raise up a a a, a stick with a kind of like a sponge, his up on the end, and it was it was sour vinegar, and Jesus received that just to get a little bit of moisture into his mouth so that he could complete the plan. 
And he says, it is finished. He precisely finished the plan. And then he gave up his spirit. More pr predictions about Jesus were fulfilled in Zechariah. Uh, it says that, uh, in, in Psalm it says that no bones would be broken. And in Zechariah it says they will look on him in whom they have pierced. You know, the soldiers came around because the way you die on a cross is slow and awful and the people wanted these three men on a cross to die quickly because Passover was coming. And so what they would do is because the way that you even continued to live in excruciating pain was you had to lift up with, with your feet and stretch out to exhale and inhale and it was incredibly painful but it was the only way and that the natural response of the body was to do that and so what they did is they would come around and they would break the legs of the people on the cross so that they could no longer with broken legs raise up and exhale and inhale and they would suffocate quickly do you know that Jesus actually died before the command to go break their legs took place so when the soldiers came to break their legs, they looked up at the cross and said, he's already dead. We don't need to break his legs. But just to be sure, you know what they did? They took their spear and they pierced his side. Fulfilling two prophecies. No bones would be broken, but his side would be pierced. You know, as a freshman, as I read through some of these predictions and prophecies, I didn't have the faith to believe that it just so happened because it was precisely predicted. And Jesus fulfilled them all and cries out, it is finished. Boy, I tell you what, that was the, the most complicated long-term plan ever in the history of the world was finished by Jesus on the cross. People thought, well, he's finished. Yeah, he died. Well, the elders thought, yeah, thank the Lord that's finished. I mean, that guy was a problem. The Romans said, I'm glad he's finished because, boy, he, he gave us a lot of extra work. I think the devil might have even thought, well, he's finished. Maybe I win. But then Sunday came after completing the path of redemption. He rose again. And there was an enduring hope. Justice had been satisfied. He had to die to pay for our sin. First Peter 2.24, who himself bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And then lastly, what does it take to be saved. Jesus puts it this way. 
This is my, one of my favorite verses, John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world. You think God's ticked off at you? Yeah, maybe he has good reason to be mad at us, don't you think? Is he disgusted by you? Is he disgusted with me? Jesus says in John chapter three, let me just tell you what really is going on in the heart of God. For God saw us in our sin, in our humiliation. He saw the things you and I would never want to tell anybody about. And with this is God's response. God so loved the world. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There is a God. He had a plan. He knows we're a mess. He knows things are broken around, all around us. He sees the hardship, the violence, the, he, he knows everything that is ugly going on in our world. He knows that everybody ends up dying. And so what did God do? God says, I'm coming to get them. In August 16, on August 16, 1987, one of the worst aviation accidents took place in Detroit. Northwest Flight 225 took off from Detroit and it crashed. Um, one survived out of 155 people. A four-year-old little girl from Tempe, Arizona named Cecilia. When the plane crashed, the rescuers at the scene couldn't believe that anybody would survive. In fact, as they went through the wreckage, they discovered little Cecilia, four years old, strapped in her seat. And they thought there's no way this girl was on the airplane. But they checked the manifest and sure enough, Cecilia, her mom, her dad, and her brother were all on that flight. And somehow, someway in the wreckage, she was still alive. So they began to try to figure out how in the world, and they came to conclude this, that even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula, unbuckled her own seat belt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, and wrapped her arms around the body of Cecilia and would not let go. And the impact and of the explosion killed her mother, but somehow she survived. You know, God knew in order to save us, he would have to get on the doomed flight we're on. And he would have to bear in his body the brokenness of this world, sin and evil, and he wrapped himself around us so that we could survive.
Jesus was on a mission. It had been carefully planned from the beginning of time. God knew that human beings would disobey him. But he loved us so much, he found a way. And the way was Jesus. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. And then he rose again the third day. This is why we have hope. I love the story of people who come to Christ and their lives are changed. For instance, um, one of the greatest actors in Hollywood was a guy by the name of Steve McQueen. Anybody here ever heard of Steve McQueen? Raise your hand. Well, there's some old movie aficionados in the room and some old people. In 1974, Steve McQueen was the king of cool. I mean, he was, look at that guy. He was the highest paid actor in the world. He had it all, money, fame, power, but he admitted that something was missing in his life. So he moved to a small town in California to get away from the Hollywood scene he found so empty. Nothing had satisfied him. His soul was still looking for home. He even refused to read scripts. And in fact, he said, okay, in order for me to read a script, you have to pay me $50,000 just to read the script. Doesn't say, say I'm going to take the script. He thought that would just dry up all of the offers. In fact, the opposite happened. He became even more popular. And they were sending him scripts all the time to read. It was during this time he was trying to escape from the emptiness of Hollywood that he bought this special plane. I mean, now Steve McQueen was a cool guy. He was a race car driver, a motocross driver, and if he was going to learn to fly, he wasn't going to fly no ordinary plane. This would be a special plane. And there were few people who knew how to fly this special plane. And so he started looking for someone to teach him how to fly. He finally found this cantankerous man in his 60s who knew how to fly this plane by the name of Sammy Mason. And when Steve McQueen called Sammy Mason and asked if he would be willing to teach him how to fly, Steve... Uh, Sammy Mason said, no. His son overheard him and said, Dad, are you kidding me? That is Steve McQueen. You need to teach Steve McQueen how to fly. And so he agreed, okay, I'll teach him how to fly. During the process, he became close friends with this guy. McQueen began to sense something different about Mason. And one day he asked him directly, what is your secret? Mason told him, well, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And because McQueen had such respect for Mason, he began to attend the church that he went to, the Ventura Missionary Church. He would sit in the balcony most, mostly and keep to himself. After about three months, he finally introduced himself to the pastor, Pastor Leonard DeWitt, and he asked if he could have lunch with them. And at that lunch meeting, McQueen peppered the minister with all kinds of questions. McQueen wanted to know if the Bible could be trusted. He wanted to know if all of his sins really could be forgiven. He wanted to know what it was like to be a Christian and what that would look like. And at the end of that meeting, Pastor DeWitt asked McQueen if he had ever accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And McQueen told DeWitt that one morning, 
When he had given the invitation, he felt convicted by the Spirit and went forward. This is what Steve said. When you invited people to pray with you to receive Christ, I prayed. So yes, I'm a born-again Christian. McQueen was beginning to grow in his faith when he got this horrible news that he had cancer. His cancer was so advanced, the doctors couldn't offer him much true, uh, hope or very, any kind of treatment, really. Now, he was Steve McQueen, and so not, he didn't want to give up on life, and so he decided to go to Mexico for some alternative treatments. And McQueen would share his faith with people during his illness. He wanted people to know how Jesus had changed his life. Just before he died, he flew in a small plane to a hospital in Mexico for surgery. And he met Billy Graham earlier, and he asked Billy Graham if he would be willing to come and pray for him before he went in for surgery. And Billy Graham met him at the airport just before he left. In that conversation, he mentioned to Billy Graham that he had misplaced his Bible and he regretted that he did not have a Bible to take with him. Billy Graham gave Steve McQueen his own Bible. Steve had surgery but did not survive. But he died with Billy Graham's Bible in his hand. Steve McQueen did not crash. He said, my only regret was that I was not able to tell others about what Jesus Christ did for me. Why didn't he crash? Because he did what Jesus said we have to do. Just believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who went to a cross to pay for our sin and rose again the third day, having defeated the devil, sin, hell, and the grave, crushing its head for us. Do you believe in Jesus? Would you be willing to turn from your sin and stop trusting in yourself? And would you make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? If you will believe, you will not perish, but will have everlasting life. I want to ask you to stand, if you will.